Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good evening, children of the night. Come on into our cabin, all of you, please. We've got something to talk about this evening just before our fiction. You have no doubt heard the big news. We've been nominated for a Hugo Award, and unless you've somehow managed to avoid being on the District of Wonders mailing list, you've read our mutual denouncement of being on the Rabid Puppy shortlist. If not, link is in the show notes. Tales to Terrify has never been overly concerned with awards. When I was working with Larry... When I'd bring up the topic of upcoming award shows, he'd generally seem uninterested in doing anything beyond the work we were already doing, and I think I understand that. We show up, do the work we've volunteered ourselves to do, and hopefully produce a show that our listeners enjoy. If it landed us an award, all the better. When we got the nomination, the district all seemed ecstatic, and when we found out being on the rabid puppy slate, that soured. When we discussed the situation, I feel I constituted most of the voice to ask for our name to be retracted from the award show. We didn't do this for the laurels, but for the love of the genre. Why be in the middle of this? I have to say, I'm glad that I was in that minority, and I listened to the reason of wiser heads in the district. I'll tell you the reasons why. The Hugos may not be important to me, but they are important to so many who enjoy science fiction, fantasy, and our flavor of the genre's horror. The graphic used by the Rabid Puppies has the slogan, Making the Hugos Great Again, and that's not true. That slogan suggests a creative energy, and there is only destruction in their efforts, as evidenced by our inclusion among other authors, projects, and artists who have no alignment with the ideals that are presented here. It's an effort to poison the well. Furthermore, that single largest reason that I'm happy to stick in this is, well, you. Tales to Terrify's listeners have circled the wagons and shown us an overwhelming amount of love during this strange time. Any motion forward between now and the announcement of this year's Hugo Award winners will be for you. However, before we move on to our business as usual, I'd like to speak to a section of our audience that I know does exist, and that would be the people who have an ear turned to the efforts of the puppies. What I would like to say to you is that the place that the puppies were born, the frustration of conservatives in a space with an overwhelming majority of liberals, is a real place. I remember when Orson Scott Card, author of one of my favorite books of all time, Ender's Game, spoke his mind about homosexuality and he was labeled a homophobe and there were calls to boycott him. Although I disagreed with what he had to say, I do not disagree with his right to speak. 
And if we truly blacklisted someone for their personal beliefs or opinions, Tales to Terrify would never air a word of H.P. Lovecraft again. And that is not right. The genesis of the puppy's frustration is valid, and speaking to that, as far as our show is concerned, the only merit that a submission is judged on is its worthiness to be accepted, narrated, and aired, is whether or not it is a great story. Where we disagree with the puppies is the destructive expression of those frustrations. Please engage in creative dialogue with your peers. Fiction is a place where we all found we could explore our dreams, our hopes, think about things that would never exist in real life. When we were kids, how many of us found our refuge in the pages of our books? As adults, how many of us vacation on other worlds, crawl through caves in search of lost magics, or sweat in fear as we run through the darkness, if only for a couple hours after our day today? We are all a community, and we should all have a voice. Please, never ever forget that these fictions make us a family. We don't have to always be a happy family, but don't forget your sisters and brothers are your brothers and sisters. Let's hear a little bit of fiction tonight. Our first story of the night is from Lauren Bucus. Her link will be in the show notes, and the bit of bio we have for her is not even close to fully inclusive of all of her work or accolades. So I'd strongly encourage you to follow that link. Lauren Bucus is an award-winning, internationally best-selling novelist who also writes comics, screenplays, TV shows, and journalism. Her books have been translated into 26 languages and have been optioned for film and TV. She's won the Arthur C. Clarke Award, the prestigious University of Johannesburg Prize, the August Derleth Award for Best Horror, the Strand Critics' Choice Award for Best Mystery Novel, the RT Thriller of the Year, the Kitschies. Red Tentacle for Best Novel, the Exclusive Books Bookseller Choice Award, and been included in Best of the Year Roundups by NPR, Amazon, and the LA Times. Her work has been praised by Stephen King, George R.R. R. Martin, James Elroy, and Gillian Flynn, among others. She is the author of Broken Mysteries, The Shining Girls, Zoo City, Moxieland, Maverick, Extraordinary Women from South Africa's Past, her comic work includes Survivor's Club, an original horror comic with Dale Halverson and Ryan Kelly, due out with Vertigo sometime back in October of 2015. The Fable spin-off graphic novel, Ferrist, The Hidden Kingdom with Ineka Miranda, and a Wonder Woman one-shot, The Trouble with Cats, in Sensation Comics 9 for Kids, set in Mozambique and Soweto. And now... Lauren Bucus's Chiselhurt Messiah, as read by J.K. Shepler. It wasn't the blood seas that got to him, or the dead birds that fell out of the sky and rotted on the lawn in crumpled bundles of feathers, or the plague of flying ants crusting themselves up against the window panes, or even Marlowe, dying in agony as her organs liquidized inside her and gushed out all over the carpet so Simon had to rip the damn thing out. You'd be surprised how the smell of spleen will permeate a room, especially when you can't open the windows because of the ants. That was all very upsetting, make no mistake. Even though he'd been about to divorce the silly bitch and nail her for half her estate and the account in Jersey that she thought he didn't know about, and even though her death was messy and ugly and awkward, embarrassed, he'd left her to it, going into the den to play that jewel-swapping game on Facebook, while she screamed and writhed and spat up black strings of blood. Frankly, her dying saved him a lot of time and effort because the dumb cunt hadn't changed her will yet. Easier to inherit than squeeze a decent alimony out of a shit-hot investment banker with a shit-hot investment banker's lawyer. Not that all that cash was of any use to him at the moment. That was the supreme fucker of it. The banks were locked up. The bankers were either dead or hiding out in holiday houses in Spain and France, fortified in a hurry, private security guards patrolling the perimeters with automatic weapons. At least, that's what he'd seen on the news before the news cut out. He missed television. He missed the stock ticker running along the bottom of the business report. Missed the explosions in dusty third-world deserts and the women who kill. 
and plastic surgery reality shows, and especially the scruffy animals being rescued from nasty abusive owners by trained task teams of dedicated volunteers. He felt a bit like one of those pathetically mangy pets himself, trapped in Marlowe's Chislehurst apartment block all alone, with nothing to eat except cans of foie gras and baked beans. Marlowe had thrown out anything with organic on the label in the early days when rumours about terrorists targeting the food markets were still the prevailing theory. And surely it's only a matter of time before the government restored order and his satellite TV and sent an elite unit, CO-19 maybe, to the rescue. He just needed to outlast the hoodie scum running rampant in the streets. At least the building still had electricity. After last year's riots, the body corporate had passed a motion to install generators in the building. Couldn't have warm stoley. Simon reckoned there were at least a few weeks' worth of diesel stashed in the basement. So far, he hadn't had to leave home for supplies. He went shopping in the neighbouring apartments, with a handkerchief doused in his miyaki pressed over his mouth and nose to try to obscure the smell. The bodies left him strangely unmoved. It was all very abstract, like some grotesque modern art exhibition, all black-puddled insides and swarms of flies that lifted off the bloated grey corpses in a halo when he stepped into the room. He was much more interested in snooping around, reaffirming the suspicions he'd long fostered about their friends and neighbours. The Pepoys, for example, had a lifetime supply of prescription uppers in their medicine cabinet, which would explain the delirious cheer Alice brought to dinner parties. He never liked her, or her over-eager speculative conversation starters. If you could go anywhere on holiday, where would it be? Right where I've just been, you stupid bent. That's the whole point of marrying into money. The only pick-me-up Alice Pepoys needed now was a spatula, he thought, grinning spitefully. He cleaned out his stash of pharmaceuticals just in case. He didn't mind feeling a bit sorry for himself with everything he'd been through. But he didn't want to get stuck in wallowing self-pity especially if CO-19 got delayed. The Bennets were even more pathetic. Four of the five bedrooms were lavishly appointed straight from a bespoke decorator's catalogue, pinstripe walls and inoffensive abstract prints. The fifth was kitted out with a king-size bed and a black rubber sheet and a closet containing a parking attendant's outfit and a camera rigged in the mirrored door. He took the tapes home with him, along with four tins of sardines, cherry tomatoes imported from Italy, water biscuits, a loaf of rye bread, frozen, and an even dirtier secret than the half-hearted sex dungeon, three months' worth of Sainsbury's microwave meals. On the way back, he thought he heard a baby screaming from the house a block over, but cats fighting make almost exactly the same noise, and he wasn't going to risk his life for a bloody cat. It wasn't that he was a man of no conscience— He'd seen that heartbreaking documentary on the pets left behind after 9-11. It had reduced even that cold bitch Marlowe to a sobbing, snotty bundle tucked under his arm on the couch. Even worse than that dolphin movie. He'd be sure to tell CO-19 about poor little Kitty when they got here. And they could sort it out. The Bennett sex videos were tedious. He'd seen way worse on the internet. Which is the only thing still running... All the major networks were down. No TV, no radio, no mobile phone reception. He picked up some radio chatter in the beginning. Government broadcasts advising people to stay in their homes. Pip-pip, keep calm and carry on. Which segged into increasingly panicky emergency services reports, asking people to report to local medical centres as soon as possible. Then it petered off into static. Occasionally, bizarrely, he'd pick up heavy metal music, as if some radio engineer had walked out and left shouty goth freaks greatest hits volume 13 playing at full blast. And yet, somehow, by some mechanism he didn't understand, probably learned from dodgy Arab protesters, the internet was still working and the bloody chavs were in control of it. He'd been glued to Marlowe's power book, trolling YouTube, his only link to the outside world. He spent hours bouncing from clip to clip, convulsively shoving cashew nuts into his mouth, washing them down with the Ardbeg. If the footage was anything to go by, the looting was still in full swing. Occasionally he heard the roar of engine noise in the distance, which inspired him to keep the curtains closed at night. But Marlowe's neighbours weren't the type who coveted designer trainers and iPods and the other shit the kids on the clips were still going after. And anyway, 
Why would they bother with the suburbs when the little scum had the whole city as their playground? He spent the next couple of days mainlining Colombian coffee and Ardbeg and popping Alice Pepoy's uppers and a course of expired antibiotics, because he'd seen enough zombie movies to know that the only thing worse than rampaging hordes of dead-eyed creatures is dying of something embarrassing like an infected toenail, and he had stubbed his toe on the doorframe. When he dragged Marlowe's corpse, wrapped in twelve layers of garbage bags, out onto the front lawn, where it wouldn't be so very much in the way, no doubt exposing himself to all kinds of horrible bacteria in the process. Mostly, he stayed in bed, the laptop balanced on his stomach, which was admittedly a little more padded than normal. He needed to get to the gym. His abs were turning into jelly. Too much stale bruschetta and salty snack foods. But the one in the building's basement stank like an abattoir, and the stairmaster was practically alive with maggots. He scrolled through the comments section of the videos. The youth shall inherit the earth was the most common slogan, outnumbering the die-hard spam streams ten to one. He clicked on a link titled, Chelsea Death Rap, spooning duck patay into his mouth with his fingers while he waited for it to load. A grainy image of a teenage moron cruising along in a black BMW SUV, arm lolling out the window, miming along to out-of-sync lyrics, mediocre bass tinny in the background. The youth shall inherit the earth, all right. Pity they can't fucking rhyme or spell, Simon thought. Checking out the mangled language superimposed on the screen. When the birds is dying, the peoples is crying. When the rich are fucked, they ain't got no luck. Our time is here. Yeah, our time is here. Is right fucking now. Christ. He clicked the link to another one. Apocalypse now in it. The gherkin burning in the background. A kid wearing a balaclava dancing in front of it bottle of Sprite filled with what had to be petrol in one raised hand. Simon couldn't hear what the kid was shouting at the camera or iPhone or whatever. The sound of exploding glass and screaming smothered his voice. Another clip showed a group of kids roaring through Harvey Nichols on dirt bikes, casually swiping perfume and makeup displays off the shelves with golf clubs. Marlow had practically lived at Harvey Nicks. Her closets heaved with Vivian Westwood corsets that were decades too young for her. The only survivors seemed to be the kind of kids you saw shambling around the sink estates, hollow-eyed yobs with acne-faced girlfriends cluttering up the pavements with pushchairs and streaming-nosed toddlers. Underprivileged my ass, Simon thought, bitterly. Not exactly starving African children, living off benefits, leeches on society, breeding like cockroaches and sucking the life out of the country, human scum, the lot of them, taking the piss. Parasites like them were the reason he voted conservative. That and tax cuts. He did find some diversity hidden deep in the results pages. A young Nigerian or Somali girl or something. Who can tell, honestly? With a shaved head metal shit in her face, demonstrating first aid techniques and basic water filtration in a series of clips. In another video, a gloating young Eastern European lunatic with a husky voice and a ponytail and a grease-stained T-shirt sitting in his basement ranted into his webcam in a hilarious accent about viral Ragnarok and this is what happens when you don't vaccinate your children. Simon realised he hadn't seen a single person over 30 in any of the recent clips. He hoped this was because people his age couldn't be asked, but he was beginning to doubt it. Feverishly, he clicked on clip after clip, desperate to find someone, anyone, who looked like his sort of person. His age, his type, nothing. And that's when he had the epiphany. CO19 were never coming. He, Simon Thomas St. Martinborough, was the last of his kind. He half skidded, half ran to the full-length mirror in the walk-in closet, taking a moment to admire himself before searching out the truth in his reflection. You'd never say he was thirty-eight. A wannabe silver fox, Marlowe had called him. At twenty-three years, his senior, she could fucking talk. His scruffy beard was peppered with silver. His hair was dirty and sticking up in places. But his skin glowed with an oily pink health, and his eyes were wild, full of intensity and fire. He looked like a man who had survived a terrible thing. He looked enlightened. He looked, in short, like the Chosen One. His reverie was interrupted by roaring engines. Aston Martins, if he was any judge of fine luxury motor vehicles, and he was. He quickly reached for the light to turn it off. No point letting him know he was there. He poured the last slug of whiskey into his glass and sat waiting in the dark for the damn youth to fuck right off. 
which is when they lobbed the Molotov through the downstairs window into the study, where it just so happened he'd been storing all the liquor he'd rescued from the neighbouring apartments. It went down, or rather up, like a bomb. The house filled with churning clouds of hot black smoke faster than he could have imagined was possible. He grabbed the closest thing to hand, one of Marlowe's trendy terror-chic scarves that had been all the rage several years back, and wrapped it round his face and scrambled for the exit. He launched himself down the stairs, hearing the crack and pop as the glass buckled in the study, feeling the white heat against his skin. He almost got lost in the hallway, disoriented by the smoke, and, yes, all right, the whiskey too. But all the way through the dreadful choking gauntlet, he felt himself buoyed by a sense of invincibility, and, yes, even a kind of inner peace. He fell out the front door, gasping great big lungfuls of the cool night air, mixed in with the sweet stench of Marlow on the grass half a foot away, and turned to see her 750,000 quid love nest alive with flames. He felt a surge of exhilaration. He was alive. He was it, the guy, untouchable. And watching the flat spewing great gobs of greasy smoke out of its faux two-door windows, Simon had his second epiphany of the day. There was a master plan at work, a grand design. Simon had a destiny to fulfil, just as soon as the sun came up. Eyes gritty from smoke and lack of sleep, he wandered out into the morning, making for the high street, passing a dead horse from the nearby riding stables lying in the centre of the road, its skin undulating with maggots. Obviously, it was intended for him to walk. He smashed the window of every luxury car for three blocks. The Messiah, yes, Messiah, couldn't be expected to show up driving a Toyota but not a single one had the keys in it. He wondered if Miss Nigeria's instructional YouTube videos included how to hotwire a car. Too late now, the power book was long gone, together with his previous life. Besides, the roads were clogged with burned-out buses and overturned cars. He couldn't believe Chislehurst High Street was the same place. The storefront windows were jagged dark holes. The delicatessen's doorway was blocked by fallen debris. The weight rose a burnt-out stinking shell. An Audi R8 had rammed through the estate agent's window. He could make out the shadowy figure of the driver crumpled over the wheel. Everywhere bloated bodies. He crunched over the still-rotting corpses of a flock of swallows smeared across the road. A designer dog, some kind of chihuahua, covered in sores and burrs, trotted after him for a while, but he shooed it away. He felt for it, of course, but he had more important things to do right now. The future of England depended on him. The people needed him. He could show them how to put society back together again. He would explain why looting was wrong, why a good university education mattered, and why having too many children too young was short-sighted and wholly untenable. Although he realised that they would probably need to start in on repopulating the planet fairly soon, and his seed would be an absolute requirement. He'd already resigned himself to having sex with only the most beautiful and promising young chav girls with their big hair and overabundance of makeup and the juicy velour tracksuited bottoms. He headed towards Orpington, then Mottingham. He remembered seeing the high street on one of the clips and it looked fairly intact. The kids would be tired of looting and rampaging by now. They'd want someone to tell them what to do. Too many years living in a nanny state would mean that eventually they'd welcome a forward-thinking leader to show them the way. It took him most of the day to make it into Mottingham. He had to wrap his shirt around his mouth to block out the stink of burning plastic and putrefying bodies that filled the air in Bromley town centre. He'd almost made it past the smouldering wreck of Simons and Spencer when he heard the grumble of an engine and the squeal of tyres. He whirled around in time to see a motorbike, a Ducati for fuck's sake, roaring towards him. He ran into the centre of the street, almost tripping over the seeping body of a policeman in riot gear, and waved his arms over his head. The bike screamed straight past him, its riders turning back briefly. Then he heard the crash of splintering glass. He ducked instinctively, nostrils filling with the reek of petrol, heat crisping the hairs on his arms. Bastard had chucked a petrol bomb at him. But at least he was getting closer. This was it. He gobbled another fistful of Alice Pepoy's pills just to take the edge off. He followed the sound of drum and bass through a labyrinth of council houses and narrow alleyways, weirdly free of rubbish. Then he saw the first one, a black kid wearing an ill-fitting Armani suit smoking a cigar, leaning up against the bonnet of a black BMW parked at an angle and blocking the street. Simon heard the sound of children's laughter, smelled the delicious odour of some kind of roasting meat. 
He could hear music pumping out the nearby houses. It looked like business as usual. He felt his heart sore. Soon he would take his rightful place. What you want, man? the kid said. Behind him a group of kids emerged from the houses. Some had children slung casually on their hips. Simon felt heat spread through his stomach like a good single malt. His people. His heart went out to them. He thought about how they would look back at this moment, tell the story over and over again, all part of his legend, the coming of Simon. A plump girl, wearing a white miniskirt in defiance of the cold, stepped up next to the black kid. Her arms dripped with gold jewellery. Her blue-white legs were mottled with cellulite. She had a really big gun, drooping casually from her fingers, with their luminous orange nail polish. Simon kept up his petific smile. He should have expected a little resistance. Change is hard. The girl with the firearm spoke first. What's he want, then? Dunno. Ask him, the black kid said. I'm here to save you, Simon said. No one was returning his smile. Yeah? The girl looked unimpressed. A spike of panic pierced Simon's happy glow. He wasn't used to feeling out of his depth. He remembered how he hooked up with Marlowe, how he'd read the situation the second he saw her knew what she needed. It was almost a sixth sense, a skill. And he knew what these kids needed, someone to bring them out of darkness. They just didn't know it yet. He should probably keep it simple. I know this is going to be hard for you to understand, but I need you to trust me. I'm the Messiah. The black kid rolled his eyes. Right, the girl said. Then she raised the gun at his heart. No, really, Simon stammered. I can help. I'm... He didn't get to finish the sentence. A bright ball of light exploded in his head. He couldn't breathe. It felt like a bloody great rhinoceros had ploughed into his chest. He felt very heavy and woozy, perversely all at the same time. His knees folded up under him like one of those balloon men outside cheap car dealerships. The girl looked down at him blankly. Had quite enough of you lot, she said, and turned on her heel, dismissing him. The black kid shook his head. He looked a bit sad. Then he dropped the cigar and walked away after her. The kids in the houses followed suit, vanishing back through the doorways like ghosts. Nothing to see here. These were the last things Simon St. Marmborough and Messiah thought before he died. First, this isn't right. And then, as the smoke from the still smouldering Hamlet cigar got up his nose, stupid fucking chabs couldn't even loot a decent brand. That was Lauren Bucus's Chislehurst Messiah as read by J.K. Shepler. Jedediah Kalanu Shepler was born in Texas. He spent formative years in Northern California, then returned to Texas to get an honors degree, some come loud, in anthropology from the University of Houston. He lives in the traditions of both the European Renaissance and feudal Japan, and believes diverse pursuits and interests build keen minds and bodies. He is, consequently, a student of martial arts, a practitioner of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and is a surfer, artist, and filmmaker. He's acted in and produced music videos as well as served as rigger, greensman, prop man, and stunt coordinator. He also dabbles in music. Jed has worked in logistics, dog training, security, education, and other jobs, and says that he is not entirely sure he's qualified to do anything. But he is a great respecter of fine storytelling and of the tellers of tales, and that he is very proud to contribute his narrations. Currently, Jed is working on a book about late 19th and early 20th century glass bottles found in Houston and of the forgotten history that is all around us and just under our feet. He lives in the Houston Heights of Texas and likes cats and dogs, but doesn't have any, and sometimes he scribbles short, humorous movie reviews that no one reads. You can remedy that by stopping at his site, downthemoviehole.blogspot.com. Link will be in the show notes, where he has a Deadpool review I agree with and a Force Awakens review that I don't. Check out his page and disagree with us both. Our second story of the night comes from... Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Joanna Perry Pinsky. Joanna was born in Chicago, where she became interested in writing at an early age. When she was still too young to properly write, she would make books out of computer paper, written in scribbles, not actual words, and read them aloud to anyone who would listen, creating the stories anew each time. She attended Butler University for her Bachelor's of Art degree in English writing and Spanish. During her time there, she won four first-place prizes in the English Department's annual creative writing contest in the categories of fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. She also served four years as a staff member for the university's undergraduate literary magazine, Manuscripts. Barry Pinsky studied abroad in Alcala de Henares, Spain, for her second major in Spanish, where she fell in love with the Mediterranean climate and culture. Her honors thesis combined her appreciation for Spanish literature and history with her English major into a unique work that is part research paper, part novella, and part comedic spoof. After she graduated, Perry Pinsky decided to move west to Los Angeles to obtain her Master's of Fine Art degree in creative writing from Chapman University. While at Chapman, she studied under award-winning author Richard Bausch, who was also her thesis advisor. Her thesis comprised the first half of the novel that she is currently sending out to agents for potential representation. Barry Pinsky began publishing short fiction in small press anthologies and magazines in 2011. Her first novel, which she wrote as an undergraduate student, still fumbling through the issues of beginning writer, was published by independent horror press Damnation Books in 2012. One of her as-yet-unpublished short stories received an honorable mention in Glimmer Train's Short Story Award for New Writers in 2014. She also had a literary horror story published in an anthology alongside Ramsey Campbell and Laird Barron, some of her favorites in the genre. In 2016, she became a member of the Horror Writers Association. Currently, Perry Pinsky lives in the L.A. area and teaches English at Glendale Community College. She is actively writing and hoping to publish more work soon. And just before we hear Ms. Peripinski's story, we do hear from people asking us when we're going to open up submissions again. As I've mentioned on air before, we've got a lengthy backlog of stories to work through. We're not a fan of authors submitting their stories successfully to be aired and then waiting possibly years to be heard. This story was accepted by Larry Santaro, our founding host, may he rest in peace, and it's not the last one with his name on it either. So, we're getting there, authors. We're, we're getting there. And now, Joanna Peripinski's The Fifth. He told me to call him Spot. We were meeting at a park to go over the plan. It was dark and cold, a lone yellow street lamp glowing on the wooden bench. The playground was empty, the bench was not. He was sitting there on the left, backlit by the lamp. I didn't know his real name, which was fine by me. 
Dead leaves crackled under my shoes like glass. Closer to the bench, his name became clear. There was an oversized dog sitting nonchalantly there. It was a white dog with black spots and a hood with floppy ears surrounding a white-painted face. One black spot was painted over his right eye, face already cast half in shadow from the angle of the lamp. I was reminded of the Dalmatian I'd had as a kid, who used to chase around the front yard, or as far as his chain would go. Spot smiled as I approached. Have a seat, he offered. I glanced around the deserted park. Another figure moved in the distance. No thanks, I said. Spot's smile widened as the pirate approached us. A triangular hat on his head, a black patch over his right eye, and a frilly white dress shirt and brown vest tucked into black trousers. A sword protruded from his belt. He nodded to Spot. His eyes flicked to me. Spot smiled serenely. The others should be arriving soon. The fourth fellow was clad in a baggy white jumpsuit with brightly colored polka dots, a curly red wig, and a clown mask bearing a sinister blood-red smile. Splendid, said Spot, sitting up straight as we three stood around him. Now that we're here, I would like to first request that we do not use any real names. I would prefer that you address one another by your costume. The others nodded. My mask was hot with breath. Marvelous. We will not arrive together. Pirate and our fifth will go in first, followed by Jason and Clown, followed by myself. I raised my eyebrows and peered through the right eye hole of my mask. There were only four of us. Let's run through it again, shall we? When we are all inside, Pirate and the fifth will excuse themselves upstairs and enter the third floor on the right from the main staircase. Thereafter, Clown and Jason will also go to the second floor and keep guard of the room. I will be around the house, keeping an eye on the host. Once Pirate has opened the safe, the money will be given to the fifth, and the four upstairs will exit in twos. Jason will come find me as Pirate and the fifth leave, and request that I join him for a drink, after which we will exit the house. Jason will meet up with Clown, and we will return as we came. We will meet here at the bench, where you will each receive your percentage, leave separately, and that will be that. As he was finishing, I spied another figure lurking in the distance. I had to turn my head so I could see him properly. I was blind in my left eye. Delicate footfalls on crisp leaves filled the silence where Spot's slick voice had been before he added, And that will be our fifth. The others turned to watch the person draw near and stop at our half-circle around the bench. The fifth was wearing a long black cloak with a hood and black netting across the open space where a face should have been. The phantom did not turn its head for a good look at us, though it's possible the invisible eyes behind the black netting may have been calculating each of our identities. I couldn't tell. The lamp was in my eyes, blinding the clear view of the fifth anyway, like headlights on a dark country road. Drivers, Spot continued, snapping my eyes from the phantom. We are each taking different roads. You have your directions. There rang a note of finality in the silence, some ominous cadence in the whistling of the wind. I turned to Clown, whose brown beady eyes observed me shrewdly through the eye holes of a mask, and followed him away from the small group, out of the yellow light and onto the shadowed field that led to the parking lot. His car was a black Oldsmobile. It was missing a right front hubcap. The door creaked when it opened. I slid into shotgun and was assaulted by the odor of urine and burnt rubber. Clown plunked himself in the driver's seat and cranked the key in the ignition without taking off his mask. I thought it might be dangerous, driving with a mask on, but I didn't say anything, so I kept my hockey mask on, too. We pulled onto the main road off the park. A few pairs of headlights swam in the darkness around us like glowing eyes. The car hummed in the quiet. "'You know what the house looks like?' Clown asked in a growling engine of a voice. I tilted my head to the left, staring out of the front windshield with my good eye at the empty stretch of road. No, but I can guess. All the houses on you boulevard are mansions. Clown grunted. That's where the treasure is. It seemed an odd statement, so I contented myself with silently watching the trees whip by out the window. Good costume. It fits, you know. I tried to turn my head all the way to the left, so I could see him through the right eye hole of my mask. For Halloween? 
You're thinking of Michael Myers. I don't have brain damage. With a frown, I turned back to the window, staring at the fake spiderwebs on bushes, cardboard headstones jammed into lawns, and orange lights festooning the windows of the houses sliding by. A few pre-teens straggled about, sacks of candy in hand. We turned off the street and onto one that cut next to a forest, trees on one side and a high school on the other. Hey, who was that clown killer from Chicago? I turned back to face him, eyebrows raised even though he couldn't see it behind my mask. Clown's brown eyes were watching me. There was a person in Chicago who killed clowns? I asked, No, that guy that dressed up as a clown and killed people. You know, the clown guy. Never heard of him. Are you sure you didn't just dream this up? How do you not know this guy? I rolled my eyes, blinked. The windshield reflected the moon. You obviously don't know him either. I just can't remember the name. The car jolted, rocked drunkenly over the object that had collided with the front bumper. I threw my arms out as the car lurched. Clown slammed down the brake, and my whole body jerked as we jumped to a halt. My breath ripped in and out of me as I tried to blink in the new darkness. We'd rolled between street lamps. I turned, craning my head around the seat, trying to get a glimpse out the window. But the street was dark. All I could make out was a black lump on the road behind us. The fuck did you do? I whispered as horror hardened in my throat. Unbuckling my seatbelt, I let myself out of the car and started back through the cold night air towards the object. The crisscross tree branches shadowed an X on the road. I had a strange sense of deja vu. Had I dreamed this before? Clown was behind me as I came up to the body. My heart wobbled. It was some kid, maybe 12 years old. Not dressed up or anything, just wearing faded blue jeans and a blue plaid shirt. The right side of his face was smashed into a bloody pulp, his eye hanging loose by a thin red string. There was a tire imprint on what remained of his nose. Shit! I muttered, you killed him. Clown was a chunk of ice frozen on the road. He stared at the boy. I wish I could see the expression on his face, but all I could see was the red smile over the corpse white mask. What do we do? I asked, breathing hard behind my mask so my hot, sour milk breath flooded back into my nose. My hands were shaking. I'd never killed anyone before. We gotta do something before somebody comes along. Clown moved away then, popped open the trunk and pulling out a black blanket. My toes went cold. Clown looked up at me, eyes blank above his incongruous grin, holding the cloth in his gloved white fist. I took a step back, heart thudding a syncopated beat. My stomach twisted sickly. We should call Spot, I murmured. Clown was already bending down and rolling the kid into the blanket like a corn dog. The boy's limp hand flopped to the side, revealing more red stains on his plaid shirt. The one remaining eye gazed vacantly into space. This ain't gonna screw everything up, said Clown, tossing the kid's floppy hand onto the blanket as though it was an empty soda can that had fallen next to the trash. The boy disappeared completely. Now he was just a black log. Let's call Spot. We need to call it off. Figure out what to do with the body. Clown stood slowly. A ridiculous spot of color in the black night, bright red hair matching the dots on his white jumpsuit. You do that. We'll be needing to figure out what to do with your body. The threat tightened my chest, and I took another step back from Clown, shoes sliding over some loose gravel. Clown was bending over the lump now, arms on either side of it. My throat felt hot and clogged. The inside of my mask was damp from my breath. Where are we putting him? Clown dropped half the body he'd lifted, and it smacked roughly into the cement. I couldn't remember if it was the kid's head or his feet. Staring at me, Clown hissed, In the trunk, you stupid fuck! Or do you want to stand around here and chatter about it until somebody decides to stroll on by and sees us hauling a corpse around? I'm sorry, I snapped. You'll have to excuse me. This is my first dead body. I leaned down and helped him get the body into his arms. It felt like lifting a bag of quarters I used to keep in my room as treasure dead weight. I shook my head. No kidding. Clown shoved me away, went to the car, dumped the body into the trunk. There was a thunk as he clunked to the floor of it, and Clown made sure no part of the blanket was sticking out before he slammed the lid shut. You're a little too comfortable stowing away dead people, you know that? I hissed. My stomach was churning. I felt like I might be sick. Clown walked around to the driver's side. That's my job.
Fingers of moonlight shivered my spine. As I followed Klon into the car, I squeezed my right eye shut, wondering if I'd glimpsed something with my blind left. Sometimes I dreamed with it. Awful, strange things that couldn't be real. Last time I'd dreamed with my left eye, I was in a white bed in a white room, sterile smelling like lemon cleaner. A stooped woman in white, tilted in, gray-red hair and red lipstick, smiled at me. Ah, you're up! How are you feeling today? Where am I? I asked, fingers ghosting over the rough cloth of the bedsheet. Her smile took on a melancholy hue. In your room, like always. I shook my head. This isn't real. She blinked, unfazed. It's time for your medication. No, I said. I'm dreaming. She stood there with a little paper cup of pills in her hand. That's okay, she said. Soon you can go back to sleep. I am asleep, I argued. Then I woke up. I blinked away the memory of the dream, opened my good eye, and tried to shake off my nerves as I buckled my seatbelt. It was a silent drive. The house on U Boulevard was a mansion, and the Halloween party inside was blaring and bright. Clown and I entered the orange-lit front hall, surrounded by Frankensteins, witches, mad hatters, medusas, and an assortment of personified animals. We immediately found the main staircase to assume our guard post. The upstairs hall was empty, the bass beat of the party below thumping through the floor, and we found the third door on the right, closed. You think they're already inside? Asked Clown. We were late. My mind brought up an image of the black body-shaped lump in the trunk. They're probably almost done. A minute slipped by. Clown glanced around and said, Why don't you check? Holding in an aggravated sigh, I knocked on the door, then palmed the handle. It turned in my grip, and the door swung open to a spacious bedroom. A painting on the wall, two children playing with a dog in front of a modest house, was swung to the side to reveal the open steel door of a safe, and next to it stood the fifth, a shadow, holding a gun to the pirate, who was backed up against the wall, clutching a brown bag. Clown was still out in the hall. I stood paralyzed in the doorway as the fifth's head swiveled in my direction, gun never faltering. Two quick shots, and Pirate was bleeding onto the white carpet, a fallen brown bag between me and the fifth. The Pirate's left eye stared across the floor, glazed like a glass eye, and I remembered how I used to play Pirates all the time as a kid, clowning around with my friends. The Friday before my thirteenth birthday, my friend and I were running around my front yard hunting for buried treasure. I had such good eyesight back then. I saw, all the way from the lawn, a quarter in the middle of the twilight-stricken road, and shouted, X marks the spot, before making a mad dash for the prize. Now I made a dash for the bag, snatched it up, and spun out of the room with a slam of the door, heart galloping. Clown, still leaning against the wall, flinched as I shoved the bag into his arms. Get to the car, I snapped, before careening down the staircase and wading through the writhing mass of costumes. Masks floated past, flat and two-dimensional to my eye. A nurse scooted past me, her ample bust brushing my arm. Time for your medication. She purred, holding out a beer for me to take. No thanks. I mumbled through numb lips, trying to wave her off. She smiled and shrugged. See you around the ward. She said before stepping back among the other costumes. I looked up, searching the room. There was Spot, watching me through the moving colors crowd, and I almost felt like I was dreaming. I never dreamed much when I was young, but my friends and I decided that the fifth dimension, that unknown, unexplored frontier, must be what you dream. Perception of the third eye, if you will. The rest of the party blurred as I made for Spot, wondering if that wasn't the fifth dimension right now. We gotta go, I said, forgetting my planned line. Spot nodded sagely, forgiving my mistake, and we made for the door. Out in the crisp, moonlit October... The dog vanished, and I found the black Oldsmobile and slid inside, Clown already gripping the steering wheel. Where's the bag? The car peeled away. Clown grunted. In the trunk. Clown didn't respond to my description of the events on U Boulevard, and we continued to drive in silence. Trees whirled away out the window. The night was a blue-black bruise around the white, blind eye of the moon. As the park appeared on the right, Clown puttered the car to a crawl. We got the money. Split two ways? Hell of a lot more. Why don't we just take off? I shook my head. We have to tell Spot. 
maybe because his costume reminded me of my childhood pet, but I felt the need to warn Spot of the Fifth's betrayal in case he became the next target. Of course, the Fifth knew where we were headed and was surely following. We'd have to be quick. Clown Park. The car's clock was broken, but I knew it was late as we advanced into the autumn-chilled field of grass patched with yellow from the scattered lamps. Spot appeared in a yellow pool. My legs ached in my haste. We gotta split the money and go. The fifth killed pirate! I burst out, my palms buzzing with anxiety. Spot's moonlight face watched me, calm. His blackened right eye and clear blue left gave away nothing. Did the pirate look both ways? He asked at last. I blinked, turned to clown. His grotesque mask smiled at me with red lips and bared crooked teeth. I couldn't see his eyes through the dark holes, like empty sockets. What? Who are you? I shook my head. Jason. Spot and Clown were both looking at me now. I wondered why we weren't doing anything. Surely the fifth would arrive soon. Spot looked unconcerned. Jason Voorhees is a fictional serial killer who chops up teenage camp counselors with an axe. You're wearing his mask. Who are you? We have to go, I urged, stepping back to the straw-like dead grass. Didn't they see? The fifth was coming and would kill us all. I turned, ready to bolt, and saw across the distance of the park a dark silhouette. Cold wind blew into my eyes as I ran to the parking lot. I put on a burst of speed, feet cracking on the asphalt, sliding around the Oldsmobile for refuge. They were all coming towards me now. Spot and clown closer, the fifth at a distance, walking across the park, a mask, a painted face, and a shadow. Maybe I was dreaming with my left eye, but no. There was always a room, a white room, not a dark park and a faceless killer. A shot rang out, and Clown was lying on the grass, just a grinning mask and a deflated polka dot costume that bagged around his skeletal frame. Spot continued without a glance down, stopping next to the car. Where's the money? He asked. I remembered the boy's body. In the trunk. Open it, said Spot. I looked around. The fifth loomed in the distance still. Confusion pounded in my head as I slowly stood and pushed up the lid of the trunk. Atop the black lump was a brown bag. Open it, said Spot. I pulled the string that tied the top. The inside gleamed, so I picked up the bag and held it in the light. It was heavier than I remembered, and when I saw its contents, I dropped it with a metallic rattle. A silver sea of quarters rolled out onto the asphalt. What is this? I demanded, breath tripping in my lungs. X marks the spot, said Spot. Open it. I turned with shaking hands to the black blanketed lump in the trunk and started unpeeling layers of cloth until the boy emerged in the moonlight, pale and blue plaid, his right eye dangling from the socket by a bloody yarn. With a jolt of heat that spread like fire in my veins, I stepped back, recognizing the face now, as I brought my fingers up to my plastic mask, staring at my twelve-year-old self lying dead in the trunk. I turned away wildly, throat burning. The fifth was coming closer, gliding along like a ghost. I, I blinked in the burning yellow light of the parking lot lamp and stumbled away, smashing to the ground as everything tipped sideways. My head smacked roughly on the pavement, and the world whirled out for a moment. When I came back, I was no longer in the parking lot, but in that white room for my left eye dream. The nurse with the red lipstick was there, and I was in bed. You're awake, she said. Eyes. I murmured, trying to hold on to the real world where I'd just been, the street lamps and the headlights and the darkness. Yellow eyes. Now, none of that, she reprimanded gently. What? I asked. Her closed-lipped smile was sad again, and she spoke as a teacher might to a slightly stupid child. You remember, years ago after the accident, your liver was damaged and your eye was yellow. Jaundiced. You said the yellow eye was the evil eye. But we learned that was all in your head, didn't we? Your liver was fixed, and you've not had a yellow eye since then. Your eye's fine now, isn't it? Everything was confused. I looked around the flat room. 
I thought I'd been squinting with my right eye, but that wasn't it. I just couldn't see out of it. Which eye? I asked, dread pooling in my stomach. Your left, of course, said the nurse, voice sad and sweet and sympathetic through her clown red lips. You lost the right in the accident. My heart paused, and I turned to a pool of silver that hung on the wall, and I saw in the mirror my left eye intact, in the right socket a glass eye. When I screamed, shook my head, and closed my eyes, I felt the cold black top once more beneath me. I was awake now, in the world of my right eye, and here I saw the fifth standing sideways, a dark silhouette. Spot crouched beside me. You remember? Fifteen years ago? I was playing pirates on the Friday before my thirteenth birthday, my loyal Dalmatian running around on his leash in the dusk, and my friend and I were searching for treasure on the front lawn when I spotted a silver quarter shining like a fish eye on the street, and I ran for it, shouting, X marks the spot! When I heard a grumbling engine and turned right to see a black Oldsmobile charging down the road, the driver just a black undefinable silhouette against the glare of the headlights like two yellow eyes and then there was the acrid smell of urine and rubber then pain everywhere the accident i remembered now even though it hadn't happened to me in this world the world of my missing right eye spot stood up white face gleaming and turned away as i lay on the ground breathing into my mask seeing with my glass eye caught between two realities I was in the fifth dimension of dreams, which I was really blind. Clown said, I don't have brain damage. Clown said, I just can't remember the name. And I said, are you sure you didn't just dream this up? Was I sure? I groped for the bag of quarters. The tiny pieces of metal were cold and solid in my hand. I realized my mask had slipped off. The asphalt was hard and gritty on my cheek. The world felt so real. How was I to know which was the dream? And if I open my eyes now, what will I wake up to? That was Joanna Perry Pinsky's The Fifth as read by Logan Waterman. You can find it in print in the anthology Alternate Dimensions, published by Static Movement. Logan has a degree in technical theater from California State University and has worked in many theaters, large and small, professional and amateur. He has also worked for Apple Computers, which is a bit of a PS, so have I, sold hot tubs and comic books and prepared court documents. He has taught and performed sword fighting for the stage and run lights for a local band until they broke up. As of writing this bio, he has narrated for the Drabblecast and nearly all of the District of Wonder shows Starship, Sofa, Tales to Terrify, and the late lamented protecting Project Pulp in Crime City Central. Looking at you, far-fetched fables. Logan currently lives in Northern California with Grendel, a huge black beast whose primary occupations are sleeping, stocking the fish in the aquarium, and keeping the house safe from the hordes of invisible monsters that come out after dark, and Morgana a small, fluffy queen who rules her domain with an iron paw. The fish are unimpressed. That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Our show is produced by our editors Philip Oldham and Scott Silk, thanks to webmaster Josh Leitze, and theme music by David Raiklin. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.